0: This podcast is for general educational and entertainment purposes only and should not be considered medical, practice management, legal, investment, or other professional advice. No one should act or refrain from acting based on this podcast without obtaining appropriate professional advice.
1: I think um, there's certainly a big opportunity. We must, of course, recognize that most startups fail. Um, So some of these companies I mentioned won't exist uh, in a few years and uh, those that do exist will likely continue to evolve and exist in a different uh, form than they do currently. Um, but I do think there's an opportunity um, for many of these startups, especially uh, if they're able to align uh, with some of the new entrants, like such as advanced primary care organizations, uh, retail players um, uh, who are getting into care delivery, um, et cetera. And you know these groups are looking for for value high value uh, GI partners. Who provide kind of seamlessly integrated care or good patient experiences um, in lower cost settings.
0: Welcome to Gastro Broadcast. I'm your host, Kevin Harlan. Today, I have the great pleasure of speaking with fellow proud Tower Dr. Spencer Dorn. Dr. Dorn is a gastroenterologist, professor, lead informatics physician, and Vice Chair of Medicine for Care Innovation at the University of North Carolina School of Medicine. Dr. Dorn did his fellowship in gastroenterology at UNC. He also received his Master's in Public Health and Master's in Health Administration degrees from the UNC School of Public Health, where I also had the pleasure of receiving my Master's of Science in Public Health. Dr. Dorn has an impressive list of publications, many of which focus on innovation, including use of virtual approaches to providing care. His recent article in Moby Health News talked about some of the upstarts leading the charge in virtual GI care and why these innovations may represent the future of gastroenterology. Dr. Dorn, welcome to Gastro Broadcast.
1: Thanks so much for having me, Kevin.
0: So, I have a few questions, uh, Dr. Dorn again. Thank you for, for being with me. May I call you Spencer? Yeah, please do. Thank you, Spencer. Tell us a little bit about your background. How did you begin your career in gastroenterology? And I'm also very particularly interested in how you have become so very interested in in, in innovation uh, in care delivery.
1: Yeah, thanks. Um, Well, as you can tell, I'm not from North Carolina by my accent. I grew up in New York. Um, In medical school, I realized I wanted to take care of uh, adults with chronic illness. Um, But I also realized later I wanted to be a specialist. I liked um, the ability to focus on one. Uh, more focused area, and I also kind of enjoyed doing procedures, so gastroenterology seemed like a great fit. Um, so I came down to Chapel Hill now in 2005, uh, and I chose to uh, train here um, based on my interest in mind-body medicine. And uh, as you may know, Kevin, having been here, UNC has a long and proud tradition of uh, leading in this area. Some of, some of really the, the, the grandfathers of the functional GI field um, have done their, their key work here. Um, so I was very fortunate to come here and get uh, great clinical and research training, uh, which I continued early on in my career on faculty. Uh, and over the years, uh, my career shifted a bit um, more towards uh, doing what I call real-world work. Um, so for a while, I was helping to run our clinic and then our procedure units, and uh, I had the uh, opportunity for almost a decade to run our clinical program, uh, which I'm real proud of. We've, uh, we have a fantastic group um, here in Chapel Hill. And more recently, about two years ago, I moved into a role uh, helping lead our Department of Medicine, which affords me a, an opportunity not just to work in GI, but also the other uh, you know, 11 medical subspecialties. Um, so it's, uh, it's a lot of fun. In terms of how I got interested in innovation, um, I've always been the type who likes to understand how things work. Um, so it was kind of organic that it just happened. Um, I think uh, just trying to get things improved, trying trying to figure out how we could do things better. I think that's what innovation is. Um, so, yeah, I've been, I've been, been lucky and and have had great help along the way.
0: When thinking about innovation in medicine, many, maybe most, uh, focus on technological advances. Based on your work, research and publications, I've come to learn that your thinking about innovation is much
1: broader, a much broader consideration. What does innovation in medicine mean to you? So I think innovation is just finding better ways to do things, uh, hopefully more effective, more efficient, more affordable. You know, in healthcare, how do we make people's lives better? Technology certainly plays a key role. Um, you know, looking at our field, gastroenterology, all the innovation in pharmaceutical space, devices, um, information technology, to some respects, has really advanced our field. But it's, it's clearly not just about technology, right? Ultimately, healthcare is about people. And how we bring people together to use our resources and take care of other people uh, effectively. So, um, I'm not sure I'm answering your question, Kevin. But that's kind of how I see innovation. I see it. I see it more from a people perspective. But clearly, technology um, is, is central to a lot of what we do.
0: Yeah. Thank you for that. What I was also Uh, impressed in reading some of your materials is, um, you know, innovation in my mind also gets to the, you know, the payer strategies and relationships with payers and reimbursement models and so forth. Um, I know you've done some work in that area too.
1: Yeah, uh, when I I was coming out of training, it was around the time of uh, the Affordable Care Act. um, And um, so I got real interested in health policy and uh, was fortunate to work with a lot of other great gastroenterologists to learn about what was happening in this space. The irony is, started writing about that um, right around 2008 or 9. and um, we're still primarily a fee-for-service. Uh, we're still primarily incentive based on fee-for-service, more volume-oriented. Um, you know, the penetration of uh, a lot of these uh, advanced uh, alternative payment models um, is really limited in gastroenterology as compared to, say, for instance, primary care or uh, bundles around certain surgical procedures, et cetera. Um, so I do think there's a role of incentives and in, in payment, um, but clearly there's a need to innovate uh, irrespective of of that. When it comes to innovation, I would I, w- I would also add that uh, fee for service kind of re- restricts us in many ways, um, right? Because we're we're shackled to a, 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 um, a fee schedule and a bunch of billing codes. So if you want to do something that's maybe outside the box, um, it can be hard to do because you realize you may not be reimbursed. So. I think there have been a lot of antibodies or um, perhaps resistance to changing the way that uh, GI services are paid for, um, which is fine in many respects, but I think as a community we should also recognize uh, that does, you know, tie our hands a bit in terms of the types of things we can do.
0: Tell us about some of the major innovations your department is specifically focusing on.
1: Yeah, something we're working on right now, um, you know, um, we're particularly interested in the role of specialists, not just gastroenterologists, but all specialists specialty care. Um, And, you know, we believe that specialty care really needs to be redefined for a few reasons. Uh, You know, first, demand for specialty care in our area, like many other areas, it far exceeds capacity. Um, So often care is not accessible enough. And it's simply impossible to take care of all people directly who need our services. Um, you know, second, of course, it's no secret that patient experiences, clinician experiences are uh, far from ideal. Um, and um, whether it's a patient who's frustrated by having to navigate the system uh, that's too difficult to navigate or a physician who's just feeling overwhelmed, uh, we need to find ways to do better there. Uh, and then last, healthcare is not affordable, right? It's not affordable um, uh, to individual people. It's becoming unaffordable for, for those who pay for it. Um, so we need to do better there. So we're very interested uh, in making uh, care, more, specialty care more accessible, more pleasant, more effective. Um, And how how can we do that, Uh, you know, it won't happen immediately, but how do we move in that direction? You know, so to start, I think one thing that that we're thinking a lot about is uh, the need to recognize that specialists cannot and should not see all patients uh, who need their expertise. Um, There are many ways that we can take care of our community uh, indirectly Um, through things like care pathways or um, educational programs with primary care or peer-to-peer support through things like e-consults and phone consults. Um, That's a more rational way of taking care of people who don't truly need to see us um, and kind of more extending our expertise. So that's one thing we're thinking a lot about. Um, And by providing indirect care... Um, it frees specialists up, whether gastroenterologists or cardiologists, uh, to manage those with more complex needs and those who need procedures. And you know, I think in the, in the direct care realm of things, what we're thinking about is really how do we move away from this one-size-fits-all model? Right, where every patient gets referred, they wait a while, they come in and they're seen by a gastroenterologist or a cardiologist in a clinic for a short episodic visit, and then they go and three months later come back. Um, That model works for some people, but not for a lot of people so how do we develop uh, new models of care that are more rational um, better tailored to meet specific patient needs Um, and we're working on several things in this area just to give you a few one idea uh, that we're developing um, is the idea of a consultation clinic right where provides kind of rapid access to a specialist for a one or maybe two time visit uh, where the patient then returns to their referring physician with a clearly outlined uh, assessment and care plan of course if there's a severe need, um, uh, a severe illness, I should say, that's uncovered, they stay with the specialist, but otherwise the care stays in primary care. Um, another uh, idea is um, how do we better co-manage patients, right? So gastroenterologist and primary care doctor are both seeing a patient who has you know, dysphagia or maybe GERD or something along those lines. How do we, how do we more rationally figure out who's doing what uh, and maximize the reach of the specialist without having to you know, continually see uh, the patient for those traditional visits? Um, and there are models like the collaborative care model, which you've probably heard of Kevin, that do a really good job of doing this in mental health care. Can we bring that across um, to uh, specialties like gastroenterology Uh, and then third you know when we there are certainly plenty of people that specialists need to take care of longitudinally they need to you know quote own their their problem we call this principal care so for instance a patient with crohn's disease clearly a gastroenterologist needs to be in charge of uh, and and accountable for managing that patient's illness um, and uh, serving as their as their main contact there Um, so how do we do better there How do we get away from that episodic kind of intermittent visits with a solo, you know, gastroenterologist um, to moving to something that's more continual, more proactive, and I guess, as we'll discuss soon, more multi-channel, not just in person. Um, So those are a few of the things we've been thinking about here.
0: It's very interesting to me, and, you know, the interplay of... Uh, academic, wonderful academic centers like yours and a public institution and and the interplay with the community-based gastroenterologist and how care can be provided across geographies as well as uh, economic uh, uh, landscape, if you will. Your recent article is focused on virtual care. Why do you see this as such an important area for innovation in gastroenterology?
1: Yeah, well... um been front and center of late uh, and uh, like you, uh, Kevin, you know, I've been thinking a lot about this and how we use virtual care um, uh, appropriately and, and, and optimally, um, and it's not going away. I guess that's the other thing, despite use tailing off. So, so to start, I'd say, you know, we, use, we spend more and more of our lives online. Um, that's a trend that's going in only one direction. And although there's clearly some downsides to all this online time, uh, there are also clear benefits spend in healthcare with the pandemic we were forced to pivot um, when stay-at-home orders were in place when patients were afraid to come in and see us when doctors were afraid to go and see patients right when our staff were quarantining uh, for many reasons we were forced to pivot to deliver care online and there was this big experiment to kind of um, uh, pulled back the curtain on what virtual care is and gave us a lot of experience because we were forced to use it. And I think now our challenge is how to make sense of that experience and how to harness virtual cares um, in ways that improve care overall for our patients, for our communities, for our staff uh, and for our physicians. Um, so that was the impetus to writing that article. The other thing I want to convey in the article is that. Um, the gastroenterologists have clearly taken a lead in this area, but uh, with the backslide we're seeing, uh, there are plenty of um, innovative uh, startups uh, that are coming into the space um, and uh, kind of defining the potential roles for virtual care as well. So I want to bring that, bring that experience or, or, or bring that awareness um, to the GI community um, so they can know what's happening, both in terms of potential partners, potential competitors, potential inspiration for what's possible.
0: GI practices have uh, responded very productively to the pandemic circumstance, as you say, and pivoted very successfully and have learned a lot through the process. One outstanding or open question remains the reimbursement of virtual care.
1: I guess I would say in terms of the reimbursement piece, um, for one, it was always reimbursement that was holding back virtual care, right? That was always the thing. If only payers would pay for this, um, doctors and patients would use it. Um, And... I think that's a little bit false of an assumption. Clearly reimbursement was holding it back. Um, but what we're seeing now is the public health emergency is unfortunately still ongoing. Um, and most payers are paying near equivalent equivalent or near equivalent rates. Reimbursement is a little bit lower as you, know, as you would know um, for some payers, but it's not tremendously different. Um, so, But yet, we've fallen back to our old ways where really a tiny percentage of visits are being conducted online. Um, so reimbursement certainly is important, and if these services are not reimbursed, gastroenterologists will not provide them. But we have to be careful, that's not the only thing, holding virtual care back. Um, you know, there's the process of change, and workflows, and teams, and technology, uh, etc., are, are equally important um, uh, potential barriers. In your article you wrote that gi physicians were the second highest
0: adopters of virtual care but there were limited benefits what are some of the new tools technologies and workflows that practices need to make virtual care as effective as possible
1: simply transitioning a in-person visit online so taking you know the in what happens in the office and putting it on zoom certainly has benefits as you mentioned earlier those living in the dc area to drive a short um, uh, while to see their gastroenterologist could take an hour. Um, so that's certainly more efficient. It saves a lot of travel time for patients um, who are um, uh, working or too ill um, or lack transportation for various reasons, or just simply don't want to spend an hour in traffic. Uh, virtual care um, is often more convenient um, and um, just m- often more accessible. So there's certainly benefits. Uh, But at the same time, moving a traditional office visit online takes the gastroenterologist just about as much time uh, to do the visit, often requires a similar amount of staff, um, and it's not necessarily going to make care more effective or more affordable. Um, So when I was saying there are limited benefits, that's what I was uh, suggesting. Yes, there certainly are benefits to being able to do video visits, but I'm not sure it's going to completely... Um, uh, cure all that ails healthcare and make it all suddenly just super effective, accessible, uh, affordable, great experiences. Um, So then when it comes to technology, the second piece of your question, what are the tools, technologies, and workflows um, that practices need? Um, It's actually not the technology so much, right? The technology has been commoditized. We all um, have easy access to and the technology needed to deliver a video visit, for instance. Um, the harder part is really the change process, the workflows, the teams uh, who can uh, provide virtual care more effectively. Um, so for instance, um, what type of visit does the patient need? Um, does a patient even need a visit? Can we do things kind of asynchronously through chat um, with the patient or messaging or, or chat or messaging with the referring physician, um, avoiding a visit altogether? Um, can we use remote monitoring to uh, see how our patients are doing at home and um, you know, identify those who do need to be seen and figure out ways to see them more effectively and intervene before um, problems get worse? Um, so that's, uh, that's another example. Um, then you know, how do we bridge what we call last mile services? So we could see people online or we could you know, buy video or we could see them um, just through chatter or messaging. Um, but what happens when we need to touch them, when they need an infusion, when they need a lab test, when they need a procedure? Um, so there's a lot of work we need to do there so that the care that we take for granted in the office and we say, walk across the hall and have your uh, blood done, blood test done, excuse me, or a stool study done, or you know, go down the street to the pharmacy and you'll pick up your medication. There's a lot there that we need to think of. Uh, in terms of workflow to make um, overall virtual care more seamless and integrated uh, into real world. Tell us about
0: some of the, quote, upstart organizations in G.I. Care that you think are truly innovative.
1: Um, and I, I think they broadly fall into two general camps or categories. Um, the first, there's a group of upstarts that aim to supplement the care um, and fill in the gaps in care that's happening locally. Um, in traditional GI practices. Um, and they do this by addressing things like diet and nutrition, looking at preventive care, um, behavioral mental health, and remote monitoring. So these groups uh, include, um, some of the better known would be GI On Demand, um, Sonar MD, which um, many in your audience have likely heard of, uh, Trellis Health, focused on IBD, and uh, last I'd mentioned one called Vivante. Um, And again, they're they're looking for um, patients to stay with their local uh, gastroenterologist and they provide more of this wraparound services um, to to kind of bridge the gaps. Also in this group, I would include a few of the digital therapeutics that are now available. The first is one called Mahana, which you may have heard of. They're a digital CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, uh, a program for um, adults with IBS. I believe they're also studying um, with children. Uh, And then there's a newer, uh, more recent entrant called regulara, which uh, provides hypnotherapy uh, for adults um, with um, IBS and abdominal pain. Uh, so this is exciting, right? For, for in many places, um, we just don't have access to great therapists. Um, mm-hmm. We may not have access to nutritionists. We may fall flat when it comes to things like preventive care. Um, we may have challenging monitoring our chronically ill patients for um, exacerbations in their conditions. Um, so these organizations um, really provide potentially quite valuable services. Um, and I'm sure many in your audience have already looked, out, looked into partnering with them uh, uh, to find ways to better serve their communities. Um, the challenge that these groups have, of course, is first proving their value. Um, there's a high bar there. They need to prove what they're doing actually works and is effective. Um, they, of course, need to develop sustainable business models. They're coming from a different angle than the traditional payer-provider relationship. Uh, but I think most of all their key challenging is finding ways to integrate with local GI practices. How do they, How do they work with them Uh, It's one thing to provide online services, online CBT or dietitian therapy, remote monitoring. But when when they recognize there's an issue or when they have a recommendation, how do they get it back to the gastroenterologist on the ground so she or he can can affect change? Um, So that's their big challenge. Um, I really like what Sonar MDs does. Um, not surprisingly, started by a, a great gastroenterologist with very experienced uh, at running practices. So that's probably why they have the lead Sonar. As you probably know, Kevin uh, monitors uh, patients with IBD. And when they recognize that their symptoms are potentially worsening, they notify uh, folks on the ground and the local practices about it so that they can get in touch and bring them in um, for a visit, a procedure, um, a test uh, to make sure that a flare is not um, uh, uh, running out of control um, and preventing the patient from winding up in their local hospital. Um, I also like Trellis Health, also developed by um, some really great people out of Mount Sinai, really experienced in IBD care. They're they're focused more on on resilience and uh, kind of uh, taking a um, integrated approach to uh, uh, caring for patients uh, suffering from IBD. Um, so there's a lot of there, there's a lot of great work happening in this area, but clearly also some big challenges.
0: Yeah. And each of these systems can significantly impact the cost of care, as you've just described. Finding patients in need of services upstream before they find themselves in extremis in an ER or having imaging studies um, is very important from a cost avoidance standpoint, in addition to being better quality care. And it's that aspect of those programs that I think the payers will, uh, commercial payers will over time be increasingly interested in uh, because they're paying those ER visits, they're paying those surgeries, they're paying those
1: imaging studies. Certainly, that's that's their value proposition is, um, right, a little bit of upfront investment upstream as you as you mentioned, uh, could prevent uh, costly uh, downstream events. Um, you know, the jury's out 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 on whether that's true, there is there certainly is data uh, that Sonar and Trellis and others have um, published and shared uh, that suggests uh, they may be moving the needle uh, in the right direction. Uh, but there's a high bar. Um, there's a high bar for payers and employers uh, evaluating these services um, and um, hopefully hopefully, uh, continue to make progress. The other group of I mentioned there are two types of companies. So the one type of upstart are those that want to supplement or wrap around local GI care. Uh, the other group is a smaller group of companies that are directly providing GI care in the cloud. Um, so, they're taking what's known as a virtual first approach, um, getting referrals for patients who have GI symptoms and seeing them online, usually starting with a nurse practitioner or a gastroenterologist online, and then trying to build some of these integrated services and deliver them all remotely. Um, so the most established of these groups is one you may have heard of, Kevin Oshi Health, mm-hmm. um, which describes itself as an integrated GI care provider um they're doing some really interesting work um, led by a good team and um they're actually in the process of studying what they do which is exciting because they'll be able to share their results and show you know are they bending the cost curve so to speak are they improving outcomes what types of experiences are they uh, delivering Uh, you know the advantage these groups have um, from a virtual care perspective is they're They're intentionally built from the ground up. They don't have all the legacy baggage that traditional GI practices have. Um, So they can develop purpose-built technology and workflows and teams, kind of what we were discussing earlier, um, all around kind of a virtual uh, care model. Uh, The challenge, of course, is there's only so much you can do in the cloud. Um, You can't do everything remotely. Sometimes we need to touch people. Um, So how do they integrate with care? directly um, when it's needed in person, um, can, and, and to me a big question is can they serve uh, patients with more complex needs who we know account for the bulk of spending? Um, there's clearly a big GI market, um, but how much of that market can they serve? Um, and is this more um, of a nicer experience for um, a lower acuity needs, or can they really Um, break into uh, uh, serving those with complex chronic needs who we know account for the bulk of costs. We'll we'll see when OSHI publishes um, some of their studies.
0: What are the long-term prospects for these innovative companies and what is needed for broader adoption of virtual GI tools and systems?
1: Yeah, I think um, there's certainly a big opportunity. We must of course recognize that most startups fail Um, So some of these companies I mentioned won't exist uh, in a few years and uh, those that do exist will likely continue to evolve and exist in a different uh, form than they do currently. Um, But I do think there's an opportunity um, for many of these startups, especially uh, if they're able to align uh, with some of the new entrants like such as advanced primary care organizations, uh, retail players um, uh, who are getting into care delivery, um, etc. And, you know, these groups are looking for for value, high value uh, GI partners who provide kind of seamlessly integrated care, or good patient experiences um, in lower cost settings. Um, so I think there is a big opportunity for many of these um, uh, newer companies. Uh, in terms of your second uh, question, you know, what's needed for broader adoption? Um, it's hard to know. Uh, clearly, the pandemic—you know—everyone said, you know, the genie's out of the bottle, the cat's out of the bag, whatever it was. The, can, the pandemic was a forced experiment, um, so it kind of lit the fuse and um, uh, got uh, many gastroenterologists and, and patients uh, quite familiar with virtual care um, and on this, the start of this longer-term adoption process. Uh, but you know, as, I, as you know, I alluded to before, um, a lot of the motivation is no longer there. Um, so not all, but in many practices, things are kind of backsliding to where they were. Um, so I think long-term adoption, um, clearly time, right? It's, it's it's hard to bet against the future. And clearly this is part of the future. It's hard to imagine that in 20 years, we'll, uh, we won't be doing most of our care online. Um, but I don't know, a year from now, I don't know if things will look so different than they do today. So I think part of it is time. Uh, things are uh, for better or for worse, um, healthcare is a slow-changing um, uh, industry, and um, I think um, it just takes time. We have so so much, um, entren- so many entrenched interests and just old patterns um, that it'll take time for things to evolve. I think um, otherwise, um, perhaps. Um, Payment reform is clearly important. Um, if we do eventually move towards more advanced payment models, at least theoretically, that may spur uh, more flexibility um, to join and, and use these tools. Uh, I think a younger workforce, uh, gastroenterologists who are training today, um, you know, they, they, they're they digital natives. They grew up using um, iPads and iPhones and, um, you know, they, they're training in a time where virtual care is is, is just an ordinary thing. Um, so I think as, as um, younger generation of, of gastroenterologists uh, join the workforce, um, there likely will be some change as well. Um, so I'm not sure it'll be any one thing specifically, but I think over time, uh, probably a confluence of factors will will push adoption more broadly. Um, again, not sure it'll be the next year, but certainly over the long term.
0: Thank you, Dr. Doran Spencer, for joining us today. We appreciate this look into the importance of innovation for healthcare and for gastroenterology. Thank you very much.
1: Thanks so much, Kevin. It was my pleasure.
0: Thank you for listening to the Gastro Broadcast. Find new episodes through Apple, Google, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast fix. For information about our hosts, guests, and supporters, visit gastrobroadcast.com. Produced by Steadfast Collaborative.